listeners, I'm Iman. And I'm Kohad. And you're tuned in to another episode of Name It. Your encyclopedia of big ideas, changing how we think about the world and talk to each other. Today, our big idea is, drumroll please, Audiotopia by Josh Kuhn. And in the spirit of Audiotopia, we created playlists this week so you could all get to know us a little better. Yes. And you can find those playlists by searching Name It Pod Playlist on Apple Music and Spotify. We've got variation for you. So I made the one on Spotify with music that makes me feel audiotopic. And we're going to get into exactly what that means. And Kohar made the Apple Music playlist. So we basically have a war going on between Apple Music and Spotify now. I hope you come into the present of the now and get out of Apple Music and into the world. It's a long time debate. What team are you on? You know what? Let me defend my name. I was on Spotify for a while. And then the three-month free trial of Apple Music really got me. I'm a playlist maker, a serial playlist maker. So I had like 100-plus long playlists after that just three-month period. And now they're about like 700 songs for my longest one. So how am I going to manually transfer that over? You have a 700-song playlist. Right. It's more of a a pool of songs that I just press shuffle through. I'm dead. It's not a playlist. It's a pool. So tell me a little (laughs) bit about what were you going for the Name It Pod, the Audiotopia playlist? Yes. So I really was excited for this playlist because I told you I love making playlists. I would say it's a love language of mine. Pools. Pools. Well, this one is only 40 songs, okay? 47. And that's a short playlist for me. I want to let everybody know that when I first texted Kohar about the idea of making a playlist, I said, you know, something short, 15 to 20 songs under an you hour. Did. I did. Scroll up. <laughs> I'm not detail oriented, clearly. No, I'm just, I love that. I love it. Well, it still needs some editing and refining. But at the same time, it's a rhythm and blues mixture. It's a very sunny happy playlist that incorporates a lot of songs that I knew from childhood. But also I had fun with it because I started looking into, I don't know, like when I went to a song from Senegal that I had heard, I was kind of directed thanks to Apple Music, (laughs) which honestly, Spotify can lead you into great genre. So both services are good for that. But I started to kind of build and connect the dots across continents and to really think about it as a kind of a black diaspora playlist because those are the songs that that really transport me and make me feel connected in a way that as much as I love alternative music, I love classical music, I love what genres are often dubbed to be more white and western per se. I love my jazz and I always have loved how colorful and vivid that music feels. And I think sound is, you know, we're podcasting right now. Sound is such a transformational experience and a connective experience Mm -hmm. that can take you somewhere. And I think that's what Audiotopia is all about as an idea. And when making this playlist, when it's called Audiotopia, I was really thinking through color and like, Yeah. Those yellows, those oranges, those reds, what feels like 
you know, totally home. Yes. So yes. you tell me about yours. I know you got okay. some bangers on there. Listen, so if cars is like given <laughs> World War Two, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Mine's <laughs> giving grandma. <laughs> Mine is not, but that's okay. Okay, if you have delicate sensibilities. I would say listen to Kohar's. Mine is going to, I'm going to have some Meg. I'm going to have some Trina. I'm going to have some little Kim. My two formulas for liking music are simple. Like I either want a fire beat and Mm -hmm. a black woman talking mess in my ear. Period. Period. Or I want to close my eyes and imagine that I'm like on the dance floor in the club. But to your point, if there's a formula of like DJ beat music that I love, it is like an old school song with like a, with a DJ beat under it. So Mm. those are the two spaces that you'll be transported to when you listen to my playlist so perhaps if you are below the age of (laughs) okay wait if you're below the age of 16 and above the age of 60 you listen to mine the girls are listening if you're 16 you're gonna listen to my playlist (laughs) i know i was special I really listened to music from like the 30s to the 60s growing up. I know, and I know. And my sisters were like, "Are you good?" It's like you've put you put me onto some old good soul. I really do. My friends, they think this is gonna come up later in half baked, but they think I am stuck in the past. And that's okay. <laughs> With that's my music okay. taste, yeah, I own it. Because music, it can transport you, as we're gonna talk about, to a different space, a different place, a different time. But before we get into our big idea of Audiotopia, we're going to start with a case study. So, Kohar, what's a pop song right now that just speaks to your soul? But when you hear it, you just want to belt out. Ooh, that's a good question. I will maybe expose myself through this answer. And the TikTok girlies have ruined this for me. But as a Harry Styles fan. Say it with your full chest. As a Harry. <laughs> as a Harry. Girl, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> as a Harry Styles fan who liked him since I was 15, I really feel loyal to his whole trajectory through the music industry as someone who produced pop music as a boy band. I'm seeing Backstreet Boys this weekend, actually. Fun fact. I'm a boy band fan. I It's just, I don't know what it is about me. You don't have to explain yourself. Anywho. It can be Harry Styles full stop. Well, as it was by Harry Styles, I really liked and it kind of got old, but I think since I stopped listening to it, I'm going to like it again when I listen to it again. Exactly. You can you can put it on. How about you? Well, mm, I'm not sure. But what I do know is that if we were in our favorite era, which was of the 60s, specifically in 1961, the song that we likely would have been belting out would be Will You Still Love Me by the Shirelles, which was written by Carole King. So mm. copyright has got us down and we would have loved to have played the hook. But instead, you guys are going to have to bear with us. Kohar and I'm going to count us down and we're going to just try to sing this hook. OK, I give us the note. Yep. Well, <laughs> All right. uh. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I've never even done karaoke before. Like, I don't even I can't sing at all. Okay. Bear with us. Bear with us. So three, two, one. Will you still love me? tomorrow okay okay Okay, listen so will you still love me tomorrow by the shirelles was the very first song by a black girl group to be number one on the billboard hot 100 and basically at this time the shirelles were breaking ground because they were singing a song that basically portrayed women as sexually autonomous human beings and so whether it be the 60s or today we know that that can be a bit controversial and maybe we don't even realize that In the 50s and 60s, a lot of women were maybe just entering the workforce because of 
World War Two. Yes. Since we're talking about my playlist, being no, true, and I giving like World War Two. A lot of like historians talk about like this, like post World War Two, as like a crisis of masculinity, where women were entering the workforce. They, you know, no longer in the domestic sphere and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Black women have always been leaving in the, the house. Exactly yes, what yes, I was getting at. That yes. this has already been the case since what the tens, twenties, thirties, and their predecessors. Yes, making music. The foremothers. Exactly. That it was an established trajectory and that this girl group, this hot girl group, just did that. Yes. In 1961. Literally. And it's crazy because a lot of radio stations like across the United States banned the song because they thought it was racy. But exactly to your point. So in a 2011 interview, Beverly Lee, who was one of the original members of the Shirelles, said that when they first heard the song, they never anticipated that it would have been controversial that they always saw themselves as a group making music that was ahead of its time, but they just really didn't anticipate the backlash that the song would have got. But in this interview, Beverly Lee made very clear that it wasn't her fans who had an issue with the song. It was men. Classic. 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 Which is crazy. I mean, who knows why their panties were in a bunch, but they... (laughs) Turn it back on them. Like, who knows? Because as like we were just saying, the lyrics aren't explicit at all. No, they're literally... It's the most PG, sweetest. Will you still love me? I see love in your eyes. Exactly. Exactly. But because the song was sung and written from the perspective of a woman who was considering having sex or just had sex, presumably with someone she was not in a partnership with or whatever, not married to. And she's asking, will my heart be broken when the night meets the morning sun? Is this a lasting lasting treasure or just a moment's pleasure? Will you still love me tomorrow? The boys couldn't handle it. They read between those lines and they didn't like what they saw. They said, how dare you get on this fire melody orchestrated beat (laughs) and sing about women's autonomy, put them, address their own sexual desires and anxieties. Mm -hmm. How dare you break the myth of the idea that like a womanhood is based on like purity and chastity so mm. they didn't want to be held accountable for their reckless ways of exactly. and breaking home. No sexual ethics. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so they banned the song. They, so they <laughs> like all the banned books that are just like, y'all for we don't want to read it. Right. Yes. I'm like, mm, tell me about that. Why exactly. That? Exactly. Interesting. So the idea that pop music can create alternative spaces that both affirm and transport listeners while also going against whether it be gender norms, racial norms, these idealized fantasies of what it means to be a person in America is exactly what our big idea is about. And it's going to help us name. So what is pop music anyway? I think when I think of pop music and I know that there is a whole like field of scholarship or whatnot, like, well, obviously I think of black people. Because you cannot, I was literally just on the, like today on the Billboard Hot 100. And almost every song in the top 100 was hip hop, was rap, was pop that sounds like hip hop, even though it's categorized as pop. And so like, I, again, like I always think of black folks, I think of consumerism, I think of capitalism. Yep. I think though, growing up, funny you say that, it wasn't so cool to like pop because it wasn't hip hop and it wasn't. Okay, I'm not speaking about One Direction, I promise. Now I am talking about that. I always thought of pop as like white music. Yes. Katy Perry, um, yes. the top 40 hits. Yes. The one that, for example, there are two radio stations. Kiss 108 <laughs> was the pop 
like top 40, always the same, maybe an occasional hip hop, but it was coded to be like no hard rap, no hip hop. Yes. And 94.5 jamming hip hop and R&B was the music we listened to and we wanted to get down. And it was separate. And you bring up the amazing point that we were talking about earlier is that there's not so much separation at all, especially when you look at the billboard. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I it's, wonder if that was like the literal for us, it was 96.5 was the pop <gasps> like kiss. I wonder if it's the same station on the different. On was like it called kiss? It was called kiss. And then 107.9 was the hip hop station. Did you have Jammin? Was it Ramiro yeah. and Pebbles? No, no they I'm were not sure. It was um, Ricky Smiley and like other folks were See, on that. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was a morning show or whatever. But that's where you found that. What? I remember the first time I like drove into New York. And I listened to Z100 and I was like, what? Everyone has different radio stations. I know. <laughs> right. Right. What? The, your world isn't just like your small little silo as a kid. Who would Exactly. Thought? Yes. But Audiotopia is going to give us some language to talk about pop music. Yes. And music in general and yeah. history and how it all relates. And how it connects to the formation of American racial identities. Yeah. There we go. Period. So Audiotopia is an idea that was coined by Josh Kuhn, K-U-N. And by way of introduction, Kuhn is a writer, curator, and professor, and the director of the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at USC, where I know, being an American Studies here at Yale, a lot of the faculty here have connections Mm. to USC. So it's actually really cool to see how there is actually so much connection between everything we're talking about. That's interesting because I feel like in religion, it's between Duke and Yale. There's like a lot of interesting. crossover. Yeah. See, That's my own perception. Yeah. The more you know. So Kuhn is a 2016 MacArthur Fellow, and his research focuses on the arts and politics of cultural connection with an emphasis on popular music, sound, the cultures of globalization, U.S.-Mexico border, Los Angeles, and Jewish-American musical history. That's a lot, but I think in his work, you see how all those things are so tied together. And that's what American studies kind of is. We all study like such almost eclectic topics that I think for people that are not in an interdisciplinary field, people will be like, well, what's your specialty? And it's more like, how do we take a broader lens and connect everything together? And yes, he does just that for sure. And he also works as a journalist, an essayist and a curator. And as someone who has an interest in museum studies, museums in general and how those came to be, I think it's so amazing that he's working in the field of sound because Sound is such an important part of those experiences. Absolutely. That's why we're podcasting. Exactly. So TLDR. Exactly. So I'm going to give you guys the TLDR, which stands for Too Long Didn't Read, of Kuhn's Audiotopia, Music, Race, and America, published by the University of California Press. So this is the part of the show where we do the reading so you don't have to. And as always, we will link you to resources to do the reading if you so choose. Absolutely. In those show notes. 
So Kuhn's idea of Audiotopia names basically how popular music can function like a possible utopia for listeners. So he says that, quote, music is experienced not only as sound that goes into your ears and vibrates through our bones, but as space that we can enter into, we can encounter, we can move around in, we can inhabit, be safe in and learn from. So whether it's the Shirelles, Will You Still Love Me, Public Enemies Fight the Power, NWA's Fuck the Police, YG's Fuck Trump, a song is never just a song, but a connection, a ticket, a pass, an invitation into a different world. And each time we listen, we, quote, always slide back into this world. But each time we slide back forever changed. Mm. Yeah. So I like that. Right. That was like, I mean. That's what we were just talking, like the transportative, is that a word? Power, yes. transformative, transportative, whatever. Power of music. So for me, I feel like this is encapsulated when like people say when they're listening to music, we vibe in or like it's bumping or all these things that in my family, we jam in. We jam in. Exactly. Like all these verbs that suggest that like when you hear music, you're doing so much more than just listening to it. Yes. Yeah. I always I think through meditation, Mm. you can start to think through your senses, for example, like how you see through, especially for people who are blind or deaf, they definitely use all their senses in ways that mix. So seeing through our hands, but in a way we listen to music with all of our senses. Yes. And thinking about music visually is another thing that I like to think about. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I feel like too, it relates back to Um, When we did our episode on the erotic with Audre Lorde and she was talking about how listening to music and dancing was for her a space where the erotic functioned. So I think we can, in the same way that like Laura thought of the experience of listening to music as the erotic, Josh Kuhn is going to also think of it as an experience of audiotopia. Yeah. So something that I really liked about Audiotopia is that it includes both the musician, the music maker and the music listener. So Kuhn writes about this relationship as one between strangers. So he says that Audiotopia has produced these different worlds because as listeners, we're strangers to the music. And he writes that the job of the listener is to, quote, register experiences of ourselves in relationship to the music. And as all experiences with strangers and people, we get to know ourselves better through an encounter with the other. Mm. So I feel like that's kind of Hegelian, but I don't think we need to get into that. No, not not at all. Not at all. Um, (laughs) Not Hegel. Not Hegel. Anyways, so personally, I feel like as a music listener, the idea of listening to music as being an encounter between strangers was a little bit hard for me personally to see myself in. Because as I just said, I like to listen to, you know, women talking their mess on a hot beat. And so when that, mm-hmm. for me, that transports me. But also the song doesn't feel like a strange experience. It feels like a home. The singers feel like my homegirls, my yeah. friends, my sister friends. I feel like a stranger with music I don't like. I yeah. like Taylor Swift. <laughs> I, I feel like a stranger to the white Taylor femininity Swift. produced in that music. <laughs> I have beef with the whole genre of country. Yes, you can quote me. <laughs> no, it's just that, you know, as we've spoken So much of these genres have been severed from their roots and where they've taken inspiration. Black people. Yes. Not to reduce it just to that, but I do feel like if we're talking in literal terms, yes, Georgia Smith is a stranger to us. But like you said, the power of music to transport rests in the fact that it feels familiar and Mm -hmm. it feels like something that can transport you home. Yeah. And I think... You just putting in that language is exactly what I am I was getting at with my playlist because 
whether any of those songs will connect with listeners. Who knows? But do they transport me home and feel like home and feel like this sort of alternative reality? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think this gets at a point, too, because he's saying like, yes, the song that bridges the you know music maker and the listener creates this audiotopia that's 101, like between music and listener. But the idea of audiotopia for him isn't just like about this 101 experience. So he's really interested in using this big idea to talk about how popular music forms American racial identity. And so he's saying that in the same way that a song can open up a 101 space, songs also open up spaces that are alternatives to and go against the grain of idealized or fantasized norms about the United States. And so whether, like I said, like whether it's Fuck the Police or Public Enemy, YG, Nipsey Hussle, songs by them, these songs are opening up spaces that go against the idea that like America is the United States, like trademark, like sameness, mm-hmm. harmony, homogenous group of folks. So it seems like he's almost making some differentiation between the public and private. So the one-to-one experience that's between the music maker or the stranger and the music listener, the audience, or, you know, us as listeners ourselves. Exactly. Yes. Consumers. It's not just that, but rather it's a conversation that's held collectively within the broader context of the United States, especially in the context of popular music, that can soar to a level of being, one, I think we're in a completely different um, landscape for that because global music now has a reach that's like... Oh, my God. Billion streams in two years or something. Exactly. Unreal. So, yeah, he's speaking about the power of an audiotopia or of music to create audiotopias that go against those established racist norms. Absolutely. And I I love myths. Absolutely. And I also love the point, like, I feel like I hadn't thought about that before. The idea that and something that is also circulating around the book is like the idea that popular music is something that blurs the distinction between the private and public, even though that's a faux distinction as it is. But yeah. So what Kuhn is going to say is that listeners and performers make and consume, quote, music in the face of oppressive racialized power that seeks to erase difference in order to find a new, more sustaining way of living anew in a world hostile to your survival. So Audiotopia gets at music's utopian potential, but also its ability to show us how to move towards something better and to transform the world we find ourselves in. So like this harkens back to like, the slave spiritual, like the idea that music opens up can be the space where like survival is created mm. or perhaps where like your antagonism to American racial hierarchy or Solange Don't Touch My Hair and like the fetishization of black women's hair. Like these are all songs that can open up spaces that like speak back to racialized power. Gospel music. Exactly. Exactly. Which is interesting in the book. He also talks about how like religious experiences, his own experience in like a synagogue helped him to formulate the idea of audiotopia and like the sounds and the transmission. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. So he says that popular music validates our own sentient experiences against the grain of models put upon us by forces beyond our control. 
And so I think this is interesting because like we can think of the Shirelles, like the Shirelles were creating a space that validated the sexual desires and the anxieties about like love and intimacy that young women who looked like them would have been experiencing. And they were bucking against the idea of womanhood predicated on like chastity. Again, one that was seen as a threat, not to like the fans, but to mainly by men, as Beverly Lee noted. Yeah, yeah. So in a more contemporary context, I think that has a lot to do with why people are so against the Megan, Meg the Stallion, for example, the Cardis, the Sweeties, the Cash Dolls, the Manellos, the Tierra Wax, the Ivy Souls, the Young Ma's, the Remy Ma's, the Mary Jane Blige. <laughs> Just it goes <laughs> on and on naming. and on. Absolutely. Funny, in the process of researching this episode and that huge question of what is pop in general, like how did it become named this and how did it become severed from hip hop? I went on this Wikipedia page that was like, honorific titles given to people in pop music because we think of Michael Jackson, the king of pop. Right. But then Bing Crosby came up as the king of pop before that. And you start seeing how the genre and the sound itself has changed so much. Mm -hmm. Yet everyone who's received a title of the king of pop or the princess of pop. I saw so many different titles. I think you should go look because it was entertaining. You just see how obscure it has become, yet how much those titles also reveal. And I think this music and these musicians, these Black female musicians specifically, are seen as so contested and controversial is because they're saying, fuck those norms, fuck respectability, mm-hmm. fuck all of the ways you want me to act. Mm-hmm. You know, how many years? Let me do the math. Wow. We're already 80 years out. <gasps> oh, my God. From 1961. Oh, that yeah. feels a little sick. Wow. Wait. No, 60. No, 60. Oh, well, can you tell we are clearly <laughs> in the humanities? <laughs> Not 80, 60, but still. Thank you for doing still. that. No, it's okay. <laughs> 60s. Yes. I got scared for a second. I was like, you reached me at the point where I was about to catch myself because I was like, it used to be 40 around the time I was born. Right, exactly. No, but I feel like your point about like when you go to the Wikipedia page, you see a definition of pop music that doesn't match up what how Kuhn is defining audiotopia. That's exactly what he's writing against. And so like if Kuhn's book has a enemy, it's the idea of the relationship that popular music equals like United States trademark American nationalism. So he's writing against all the people who think about American pop music as suggesting some form of a unified, idealized notion of American unity. And he hates that folks, scholars, what have you, write about popular music as a site where basically America is transformed into the United States. And he wants popular music and its story in shaping American identity to basically be talked about in terms of difference, not harmony. So Kuhn's enemy is nationalism. So by nationalism, he means the idea that all U.S. citizens are the same, ignoring racial difference, ethnic difference, sexual difference, because acknowledging those differences disrupts a national fantasy that equates whiteness with Americanness and just equality. Do we all have equal rights as citizens? Obviously not. If this country tells us one thing over and over again, is that your gender, your race, your class background all determine your access to rights. I mean, my God. So this really just made me think of 
especially in the course of thesis research, I started noticing this so much because I was really getting at the idea of like racial identity and how people identify themselves in relation to the U.S. Census, but also casually. And I noticed that a lot of people from even immigrant families and even white adjacent groups would describe American as an un, it was almost like an unspoken agreement that American meant like white American. Mm. When they talk about American music, American food, American things mm. that all kind of stand as this unspoken norm of standardness of how things almost like the norm already is in place and understood. And then they'd be like in us. So all the others kind of are outside of this idea of Americanness, yeah, or who counts as American, yeah. And then I think it gets at the fact that for folks that were either transported here against their will, like our ancestors of the Black diaspora, or Native people whose lands have been occupied, the question is so much more complex than that. Especially we keep bringing up World War II today. But when you get into the whole history of fighting for this country, whatever that means, Mm -hmm. overseas, you realize that the conversation of music and national identity is so much greater than even our own borders. Oh, my God. Absolutely. And like we can all think of songs that put forward the idea of like this fantasy of a unified America. I mean, Mm. my God, the Pledge of Allegiance, the Star Spangled Banner, National Anthem, America the Beautiful. My personal favorite. No, I'm kidding. It's not my favorite. Fun fact. Y'all need to go back and watch The Luck of the Irish on Disney Plus if you have it. You might be able to see clips on. Uh, <laughs> no, on tell YouTube. me. I, ha- I used to, like tell Yo, I've seen this movie so many times as a kid. And I before I developed a critical shook. brain. In a no, same. Right. I loved that movie. I remember being like, wow, this movie is peak, you know, everything. And going back, the concept is like just wild. They have their cultural, almost the cultural week at at their high school. And he's like, I'm just a white American. Like, I don't have culture, mom. We're just, can't remember their last name, but she's like, what do you mean? We're just from the Midwest. And then suddenly he starts to find out that she's actually Irish and she starts to change And his mom even like shrinks down into like a leprechaun size and he's realizing he has culture. The reason I brought this up is that at the end of the (laughs) of the movie after you need to watch the details, the whole basketball tournament, all the, you know, everything. He, He becomes a leprechaun. He has to dress for his cultural, you know, performance of the week. And he sings this land is your land. This land is my land. And that song was made during World War One by Woody Guthrie. And it's this subtler colonial idea that like just because you immigrate here and you live here and you occupy the space now, we all live in this imaginary, you know, country that's unified. And that just made me think of this exact topic of what even is American pop music and how it's become this thing that exists way beyond our borders and enters, quote unquote, the East as well. Mm-hmm. Like, damn, how do we keep up with all this nationalist music? I mean, like, and it's so interesting, right? Because like when these, I mean, just the example that everybody knows, like when the national anthem plays at like a game or a football game or basketball game or whatever, 
in that space, you're expected to perform a certain way, right? You're expected to stand up, put your hand over your heart, stand up at the very least. But then, you know, Colin Kaepernick takes a knee and all of a sudden it becomes an affront to veterans. It becomes an an affront to the United States, like trademark United States. Mm -hmm. And there's an audacity when you don't take part in the, I don't even know if you would call it like anti-audiotopic performance of like American nationalism by not standing up. Like you decide to disrupt the space, to disrupt the harmony that the song like implicates you in by just being a listener to it, like by just refusing. Yeah. And so Kuhn shows that basically that the relationship between listener and pop music and American racial identity has never been about creating harmony, that audiotopias have always produced, quote, um, and specifically for the folks that he writes about, have always produced oppositional consciousness of self, citizenship, and nation that actively refutes and reorders oppressive hierarchies of power and control. So he's interested in musicians like the Jewish American musical comedian Mickey Katz, the audiotopias heard by James Baldwin, um, and the blues songs of the extraordinary Bessie Smith, mm-hmm. and the audiotopias audible in the paintings of Basquiat and poetry by Langston Hughes. So for these folks listening and making music has always been about the, quote, ability to move towards something better and to transform the world we find ourselves in. So like even going back to like the Kaepernick space, it's interesting the way that like his refusal and not partaking in the performance to not creating and disrupting the American fantasy by not standing during the national anthem is also a means of imagining and trying to like bringing to forefront, obviously, police violence and whatnot. But like, I just find it so interesting, like the way that you can create these audiotopias by listening and making music, but also then refusing to perform a certain way when certain music is playing. Absolutely. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, music is always protest as far back as the plantation, as you said. Yeah. And Kaepernick. It, that's so deep. That yeah. He's refusing to partake in the other side of Exactly. Culture. Refusing to be the proper listener. So exactly. Ooh, yes. Refusing to be the proper listener. Yeah. And so what makes Audiotopia utopic is not the idea that it's constructing and laying out exactly what a utopia absent of American racism, anti-blackness, the list goes on, would look like. But it's a utopia because we know what it feels like when we listen to music that transports us outside of the hellscape that is America. We know what that feels like. We don't necessarily know what it is. And that's what he emphasized, that it's a utopia you can feel, not necessarily a utopia you can see. Mm. So, Kohar, what is your audiotopia feel like? Mm. Well, right from the jump, I started thinking about classic Donny Hathaway or Marvin Gaye. Yeah. Who... I kid you not, my grandma and I did not discuss this, but I love Donny Hathaway. And I swear, when I just heard his voice the first time, I just got transported to another dimension, another time and space. And then when talking to my grandma, she revealed that that's her favorite artist. And I was like, when I listen to those songs, I know it sounds crazy, but I always think to myself, I was there. I feel so strongly like a, it feels like a memory. Mm. Oh, I like that. that it feels mm. like a memory. Audiotopia feel does like memory. feel like a memory. Yeah. And specifically, I think we brought up The Summer of Soul, that documentary. And that was a visual representation of what it could be and what it was like to be transported back in time with that music. But I think standing alone 
those songs have the ability to just take you back yeah. and make you feel like you're reliving that memory, but yeah. that sweet, sweet memory yeah. all over again. For sure. To be young, gifted in black is like um, almost oh, yes. a clear example because not only Donny Hathaway's version, but Nina Simone. Those are two different temperatures in my mind. Like mm. they have such a different color and sound, yet they still bring you back to that place. Yeah. That feeling. For that sure almost unspoken feeling that we can't describe yeah but that's why i guess audiotopia as a term exists to be like it feels so good and that's the power of music that we can't even put it into words yeah yeah and that's it's the no power of music to bring us together yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how about you sis yeah i feel like for me when i think of like my own personal audiotopias again like i love music that makes me feel empowered as a black woman so like Mm -hmm. on the way over here I was just listening to like Meg Thee Stallion's Plan B it makes me feel sensuous in the way that like I'm feeling my body for the sake of myself yeah but also playful like when I hear that song I imagine myself you know in a squat and something hot you know what I mean period telling whoever I need to tell what I feel like they need to hear in the moment, you know, yes. like that's what I, that's for me. That's for well, me. Right. As I just go to like sit in a class, like as if that's, <laughs> don't that get can be me a, wrong. That can be a confrontational you experience. You need that. But, you know. You need your bad Mitch music exactly. as you're walking down the street. Exactly. I don't exactly. just listen to oldies. I have a fire emoji playlist that is just for like bad bitch anthems. How many songs are there? You don't want to know. Okay. So it's a pool. It's a, a pool. It's like yeah. one that anytime I hear a good song out, I'm like, Siri, what's the song? <laughs> yeah. And I just put it on the pool, just add it all. And when I find it again is when I'm like, oh, I remember that experience. So that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Audiotopia as a term like instantly clicked in a way because mm-hmm. that's what music is to me. Yeah. Like Stevie Wonder said, that's what Christmas feels to me, my love. <laughs> yes. I'm going to challenge you to make a reference that is like for 1980. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But just as a reminder, you can check out our playlist on Apple Music and Spotify by searching Name It Pod Playlist. I made the one on Spotify. Kohar made the one on Apple Music. So So she's the Spotify rep. I'm Apple Music rep. Right. Well, we don't... (laughs) We don't need to rep anybody. Cut me a check. Just kidding. Cut me the check first. You're Capitalism. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's close out with our half-baked segment. What's your half-baked? So on the subject, I have a statement that I want to know what the listeners think because I got flamed for this statement. Flamed. I flamed. Know what you're going to say. You know what I'm going to say. In relation to music, yes. All right. I also flamed you. Exactly. It's a sore subject. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> So on the subject of pop music and Harry Styles and all the things that came up, his tickets were astronomically expensive this year. Don't worry, I did not pay. I was like, what? 700 for nosebleed seats? Not on my watch. Love you, Harry, but not that much. You need to do something about Ticketmaster. Anyways, my friends asked, what artist would you see for that much? Or if you could choose one artist to have that experience with, not that you'd necessarily have to pay 700 I think they're trying to get at the fact that, like, who would you see if you had that the opportunity resources to just, yeah, yes. fly out and see that person? <laughs> and I said, Marvin Gaye and Donny Hathaway. And you got flamed. <laughs> and they were like, are you my grandma? They just came at me immediately. They were like, for 700 Yeah. Because I naturally asked, dead or alive? 
And they gave me the opportunity to choose a dead person. Rest in power to both of you. They died so young. But I was like, because they died so young, I want to have that opportunity to listen. So my half-baked statement is just that I stand by that choice. And I'm, they I'm, are I'm, I'm telling classically... The group, I'm telling the group chat you double down. Yes. <laughs> I'm telling the group chat you double down. It's a double downer. <laughs> Quote me. Drop my... No, I'm kidding. Oh, All right. Okay. Your turn. So my half-baked thought is I just got done watching First Kill. Loved it. Loved the chemistry between the leads. Loved it. But... I'm going to say this right now because I've seen this on multiple TV shows and it really grinds my gears. For all you people who make TVs, when you cast black women leads and you have all these scenes where they're sleeping and in or bed and you do not show them in a scarf, a bonnet with their hair wrapped, it's anti-black. Because as a black woman, how am I going to believe this girl's got a full, an amazing full frontal sewing. And you want me to believe she is just sleeping on a cotton pillowcase and doesn't wrap her hair? Not even silk. What is it? Why don't you want to show women in bonnets? And you know, it's interesting because shows that are black made and have black producers, Insecure, Bel Air, they always show women with their hair wrapped and in bonnets. And these shows don't. And it's anti-black. And I'm tired of it. Period. Period. That's a deep case study. I think so, too. Maybe for next week. Maybe for next week. But in the meantime, thank you guys so much for tuning in to Name It. You can find us on social media at Name It Pod and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review this episode. Tell us what you liked, what you want to hear more of, or comment a big idea you want us to take on. And you can catch all the articles that we referenced and additional resources in our show notes and on our Instagram page. And last but not least, share with a friend. And a huge thank you to the Poorview Center for Teaching and Learning and the Public Humanities at Yale for providing the resources to make this conversation possible. Alrighty, bye guys. Bye. See you next week. We don't